few years ago, I was lucky enough to go to an amazing ceramic show full of the best of London's young artists. And at that show, I picked up my first ever original artwork. I've treasured these ceramics for years, and every day when I look at them, it takes me back to how I felt buying my first ever piece of art. Well, if you too want to get on that collecting ladder and have a piece of work that will fuel a lifetime of curiosity, then look no further than the Affordable Art Fair. And guess what? You're in luck because there's one just around the corner, and it's their 20th anniversary. Head down to Battersea Park from the 17th to the 20th of October, and you can check out over 100 galleries and thousands of original artworks, with prices starting from just £50. For more details and to book tickets, visit affordableartfair.com, and for half price tickets, use the code GREAT at checkout, valid Thursday through Sunday. Huge thanks to our sponsor, the Affordable Art Fair, for making this podcast possible. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from the Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015 which celebrates female artists on a daily basis ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my first ever guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is the brilliant Eleanor Nairn. Currently a curator at the Barbican Art Gallery, Eleanor has worked on a number of critically acclaimed exhibitions and publications, including the mammoth Basquiat Boom for Real in 2017, the first large-scale exhibition in the UK of the American artist Jean-Michel Basquiat that brought together over 100 works, And more recently, she curated the absolutely mind-blowing exhibition, Lee Krasner, Living Colour, who was the artist that we're going to be discussing today. Welcome, Eleanor. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on this podcast and for being my first guest. It's an honour. The response to Lee Krasner was completely incredible. I mean, as was the exhibition. I think what struck me the most, you know, like so many other people I've spoken to about this exhibition, is how unknown Lee Krasner was in the wider context of abstract expressionism and the history of art and also just the overwhelming vastness and brilliance of her work that I genuinely just feel like I've missed out on. So just for our listeners, can you just summarise who Lee Krasner was and what she was known for? Of course. We should probably say that your experience was really common to many. So there's only one work by Lee Krasner in a public collection in the UK, and it's currently on display in Tate Modern in their In the Studio section. I went and saw it today. And we didn't borrow it for the show because it felt really important to me that it stayed there where it belonged. And before I began working on this exhibition, I'd maybe only seen a handful more than that. So to wind back, she is born in 1908 in Brooklyn. 
She is born into a Jewish emigre family. They come over from what would now be part of the Ukraine, but was then part of Russia. She's the first child in their family born in the US. And they're a really working class family. And she's only 14 when she decides that she wants to be an artist. And she doesn't entirely know why, but she's really set on it. At the time, there's only one school in all of Greater New York where you can study art as a woman. So she's really determined that Washington Irving's where she's going to go. She then goes on to receive quite an extraordinary artistic education for the time. It's not easy as a woman to be able to do that. So she goes to the Cooper Union, she goes to the National Academy of Design, she goes to the Art Students League briefly, and then of course she goes and studies with Hans Hoffman. And At the point at which she meets her husband, through whom she's perhaps become better known, Jackson Pollock, she is really the more established artist. So that's in the early 1940s. And she exhibits her work then and indeed throughout her career, although it's really not until the mid 60s that she starts to get any degree of institutional recognition. So she has a major exhibition here actually in London in 1965, a number of important shows in the US, particularly at MoMA in 1984, which sadly opens just six months after she dies. But you know, at the time, I think she was maybe the fourth or fifth woman artist to have ever had a solo show at MoMA. So that's a major moment in her artistic career. So obviously you are such a sort of specialist in a kind of American abstract work anyway. When was it that you first saw Krasner's work for the first time? And what was your reaction? I find it hard to know, to be honest. I don't remember the first time I saw her work, maybe because she was a name that was known to me long before I would have ever seen examples of her work. And it was probably only really when I started to travel a little bit in the US for research trips, and I would have the luxury of being able to maybe have 20 minutes or something before a meeting and you'd think oh I'll I'll go and walk and look in the museum's permanent collection but the first breakthrough moment was when there was a small exhibition that had been organized at the Picasso Museum in Malaga and it was ostensibly about Pollock it was about his mural painting and mural is a really important breakthrough piece and they showed a few different artists I think largely they were wanting to say here are some artists who've been impacted by Pollock yeah And Krasner would say that herself. And there was a work by her called Another Storm, which we ended up showing right in the heart of the show. It's a piece that is absolutely enormous. I'm trying to now think what the exact... Is it part of her night paintings or...? No, it's from the primary series. So it's the work she made immediately after that. And it's one of the first works she makes using colour again after she's been in that restricted palette of raw and burnt umber. It's probably about three and a half metres across. Okay, so it's pretty impacting. It's really high impact and it's almost entirely painted in alizarin crimson. So it's got also this restricted palette. And I stood in front of this work and I think often as a curator what you're tussling with is... You know, this might be an artist that I love. This might be an artist that I would want to have a poster of their work on my wall. But do they speak to my time? Are they going to speak to other people and people who are and aren't like me? And are they going to say something? That's what you need a good exhibition to be doing. And 
one of, I think, the central challenges of when women artists were first being shown in the 1970s, so when Krasner has a show at the Whitney that Marcia Tucker organises in 1973. Is, is Krasner part of that whole feminist movement at all? She has a very ambivalent status mm. um, with it. You know, she says it arrived too late. You know, how wonderful it would have been for her if it could have come and ameliorated her circumstances 40 years <laughs> earlier. You know, yeah. when she was dealing with Hans Hoffman saying, this is so good, you wouldn't know it was done by a woman. Yeah. You know, so by the time feminism comes along, she's kind of charmed, but she's also conscious that it's not going to help her out. So the point really was that when the Whitney's doing that show and when other exhibitions of that kind are being staged, it feels like what is sometimes called herstories, trying to take women's stories and insert them into this largely white male history. Yeah. Rather than feeling like we might also just be showing them because they're a great artist and the fact that they're a woman artist is there too and it's relevant, but more than anything, they're just a great artist that speaks to our moment. And standing in front of another storm, I thought, I think a lot of people will likely feel what I feel. And did you know much about her story as well while you were looking at that work? So I had some sense that she had quite a serious artistic training and that was really important to me. Sometimes you can be seduced by a story and exhibition making in part is about storytelling, but you need the art objects to stand up for themselves. Absolutely. Partly because lots of people are going to walk through your show and they are not going to read a single piece of text on that wall. Yeah. So you need to feel confident that for those people who are going to walk through it backwards look at four things that they too are going to take a lot from it. I could tell from the work itself that she had a very serious technical training that for instance she knew what she was doing with colour and about how colour affects movement and so much of what these painters were trying to achieve was that sense of like emotional effect and some of that is by creating the sense of turbulence or the idea that something's kind of roiling within the canvas but to make something two-dimensional feel three-dimensional <laughs> is um is is complicated now in terms of more than that I didn't know a great deal and I started to read up and I think a big breakthrough for me was reading Gail Levin's biography and Gail's work started to open up all of these other kind of avenues of of thought for me about her relationship to Mondrian, her inviting Leger to come over during the war, her exhibiting with the American Abstract Artists. It really gave me a sense of the vibrancy of many different decades of her career. That I knew when staging this show that a lot of the press would center around her marriage to Pollock. And I knew that I needed to feel confident that, yes, that's one thread of narrative within the exhibition, but I needed to feel sure that there were many other strands to that tapestry. Absolutely. And you did such a brilliant job in the sense that also there are so many careers within mm. the whole, within her career. I mean, you're starting off with these little images. You have a look at the portraiture, the classic. I mean, she was a fantastic draftswoman. Yeah. There's so much going on. And I know how she talks about how autobiographical her work is as well. I know that subject's always up for debate. But I'd love to just take you back to what you mentioned that she was born in Brooklyn in 1908. So what was her childhood like? And was she an artist from the get go? Was she always interested? In it. Um, she had 
a very kind of humble home, but one in which there was quite an intellectual culture. But she's not, I mean, if you compare her to someone like Joe Mitchell, who's growing up in Chicago in an incredibly wealthy home and is regularly visiting the Art Institute, for instance, that's not her experience. There is no sense, at least in the descriptions that she's left behind, that she was regularly going to the museums and kind of soaking up that atmosphere. That doesn't really happen until she's in her late teens early 20s and then she really seeks it out so once she's at art school once she's at Cooper Union then um, of course MoMA as we call it now it was always called the modern then opens in 1929 in February and that's an enormous breakthrough because many of those artists have been looking at magazines which have black and white illustrations of Cezanne paintings in them and that's kind of all they've got to feed off and suddenly they've got the real thing in the flesh on their walls and the modern at that time is just a series of rented rooms in the Hengshire building. Now that's really interesting but when she's younger does she decide that she wants to be an artist because obviously it's such a kind of early decision to make and were her family supportive of it because they're also Russian Jewish immigrants, the reaction to communism it's a really interesting time. Did her background affect her work or her decision to become an artist in the first place at all? I mean, we had this little video at the end of the exhibition, which was a real highlight, actually. She's such a force of nature and (laughs) and she's so funny. And, you know, just to watch her hand gestures, you feel like you have such a sense of her. And, you know, she has this funny line in it and she says, and still, despite several years of analysis, I have yet to figure out why it was that I was 14 and I decided I wanted to become an artist. So, yes, she had this conviction very young, But why she did or where that came from, she doesn't really know. And we know that she was a pretty spunky teenager. So, you know, she had been relatively devout. Her family were very Orthodox Jewish and she'd been relatively devout up until the point at which she becomes a young teenager. And at that point, she starts to understand what is being said about women in the scriptures. And she describes herself as shocked to the core. And she really rails against it from that point on. And when she talks about her family in relation to this, she sort of says, you know, they said they wouldn't give me too much trouble if I didn't give them too much trouble. But, you know, when she's going to Washington Irving, the school's in Manhattan. She's living in Brooklyn. They've only just built the subway line, which will allow her to take it. It's an hour's commute each way. So there's a sense of her dedication to her craft, even at this very, very early point. She's really committed I mean, reading about her as well, she just seems so determined because mm. then obviously she goes on to Cooper Union and then she starts to study under Hans Hoffman. But just before that, with The Modern opening in mm. 1929, obviously she must have been, what, 21 at the time? Mm-hmm. So that's so young as well to be that ambitious and that knowledgeable as well to sort of know that this big museum opens on the first day. What was she looking at before then? And was there a certain work in the modern that stuck out for her, do you think? She always said that her two gods were Picasso and Matisse. Mm. But I think if she had to pick, she would have said Matisse. And Matisse is the person who you really see her going back to recurrently across the course of um, her career. And I think she's really finding her own way. I mean, when you look at Cooper Union at the time, it's a women-only art school. And even at that point, she's really tiring of the people who she's around, of the teachers who are teaching her. So she has a very combative relationship with authority throughout her life, but particularly with tutors. And when she gets to the National Academy of Design, which is where she is from about 1929, I guess it's part of what you're 
getting at here is that it's important for us to recover something of the socio-historical context to remember why that was so brave at the time. And I think part of what I think about in relation to that is on the one hand, she's got the strictures of this very orthodox emigre family where the primary languages being spoken are Russian and Yiddish. Oh, wow. Okay. And on the other hand, she's got the 1920s in America. Yes, jazz, And the birth it? of the jazz mm. baby and a sense of women's liberation. You know, women have just been able to get the right to vote and she's really drinking in that spirit in Manhattan, I think. And that infuses itself in her work very quickly. God, I'm literally getting shivers. <laughs> <laughs> it's such an incredible story because also what I'm thinking of is that self-portrait from 1930 that she painted. But in that work, age 21 or 22, I don't know when she's painting it, it's such a determined pose. She seems so secure in herself. Those lips, her interest in colour is there, but her determination is just so interesting because am I right in thinking that she used that work to apply for art school and then they didn't even believe her or something that she had painted it. I mean, the self-portraits are fascinating and I I really struggled with it at a certain point because, um, you know, there are certain kind of curatorial cliches and one of them is that when you do a monographic show is that you do your introductory text and next to it you have some lovely kind of silver gelatin print of the artist at some particularly attractive moment in their it. career. We all love it. <laughs> um, and the other one is that you have some kind of opening room of their self-portraits which we feel kind of touched by their <laughs> their attempts to grapple with their own image and so I was really kind of torn about whether or not I wanted to do this and in the end I, I felt that it was really critical and I was looking very closely at things like what did she choose to be exhibited in the 1965 exhibition. So was she very involved in that? She was very involved in it. Brian Robertson, who was the director and also the curator, you know, this incredibly important and illustrious figure at the time. He was a great friend of hers. And it was interesting to me that she doesn't include, say, mural studies from the 1930s. There's lots of work that she omits, but she does include a couple of those self-portraits. And I thought, you know, the reason why we need to have them is because it's not just an academic exercise in how to capture your own image and yourself is, you know, literally at hand. It's her trying to wrestle with what it means for her as a woman with all of these strictures and obstacles in the way what it means for her to be saying I am going to be an artist this is what I'm going to do and in that picture you're speaking about you know she's wearing these overalls and she's got this blue collar shirt on and she's got her hair looks as if it's been kind of cropped and this gaze just locks you as a viewer and it's far from the most accomplished painting that she ever made but that's not really what makes a picture work and it manages to hold us, I think. So she painted it to gain promotion to the life drawing class, which again is in and of itself very significant, given that it was only relatively recently in the US that women were even allowed to draw men in the nude. But anyway, the point is she paints this portrait to gain promotion. And and when it goes to the committee, they refuse to believe that an artist of her age, she's 19 at the time, uh, would have been able to paint such an accomplished plein air portrait. And to be honest, I think they did her a great favour because she dines out on this anecdote for the rest of her artistic career. It's one of her kind of favourite accomplishments. 
And so then fast forward a few years, she starts to study under Hans Hoffmann, who mm. is kind of renowned in the city for being this guy who is, is he kind of introducing cubism to more classical painters? Exactly. So um, she really seeks out Hoffmann. And I guess this is the point where we have to remind ourselves that at this sort of moment in the 1930s in the US, there aren't that many places where you can gain a training um, which is really looking at kind of European modernism. So, um, and bearing in mind it's the Great Depression as well. At exactly, the same time. exactly. So Hoffman has gained this reputation because he's originally German. He spent time in Paris. He's knew Picasso and Braque. You know, he's sort of soaked up this continental spirit and has come to the US with the intention of founding this school. And many of the artists who would go on to become an important part of what becomes known as abstract expressionism would study with Hoffman over the years. And um, he is basically introducing the principles of analytical cubism. But his entire thesis comes down to this idea around what gets called the push and the pull. Mm. So he's interested in how you create tension within two-dimensional space, how you make some shapes fall back and recede and other shapes come forward and jut out how you create a sense of energy and dynamism and movement. And that's what she goes there to learn. I mean, it's those charcoal sketches that, I mean, I can't even describe the background, but at the front, it's like this other dimension that's coming towards you. It's like this nude that's been cubist, almost elasticated as well in itself. And so is this the significant time in her career where she's moving from this classicism into abstraction? It's the moment when she makes the break and I think there there are a lot of artists in New York at this time who are kind of grappling for a direction. Was La Demoiselle in MoMA at that point? On show (laughs) alongside many other quintessential works. So there's a lot of kind of heavy black outlines. There's a lot of cuboid forms. There's a lot of flat planes of colour. And they're really struggling with how to be able to both assimilate this and also kind of turn it into something new. And she's really one of those who's at the forefront of trying to thrash that out, basically. Because she's first generation, isn't she? Yeah, Mm. that's what she's really kind of up to at that point in the late 30s and up to the early 40s. She holds on to a studio space at the Hoffman School. And when Mondrian comes over and sees her work exhibited with the American abstract artist, you know, he says, this is so good. It has such a strong inner rhythm. You must never lose it. So others are kind of commending her on this. But I think she's also conscious the fact that very few of those works from that period survive. Um, she was a ruthless editor of her past. Did she work, just destroy everything? Suggests that maybe she felt like it was a journey rather than a destination. But constantly her career, she's picking something up and destroying it. So, for example, you're getting this draftsman, it goes into these sort of elasticated figures, and then you get to the little images, which mm. are kind of a complete detour. You're like, hang on a second. And is that when she moves to Springs? And how does that all happen, the little images? In a way, this is her answer to that challenge. So she has about three or four years where she paints nothing but what she calls her grey slabs. And I think in some ways we could consider her as being in a period of mourning. And she's not the only artist. I mean, Rothko, there are others who are also similarly painting in grey, finding themselves moving through this very kind of monochromatic, turgid stuff. And a lot of it's about the war. I mean, for a start, there's not materials are not readily available. So Mm. there's an enormous amount of pressure to create something really significant with the scarce amount that you've got to kind of work with. And 
also the reports coming back of what's going on in Europe Especially are being a Jew. horrific. And for somebody who is Jewish and for somebody who both feels this sense of connection to a culture quote unquote back home mm. and yet where is home and what is that home and what is your relationship to it that's a very kind of complicated process of mourning to be going through um, her father then dies and I think that's a big part of what she's moving through as well and she moves out she marries Pollock um, they move out to Springs and suddenly something breaks for her so this is around 45 46 and she makes the f earliest little image that we know dates to 1946 and that's the first work that we showed in the exhibition and that was really important to me that that be where the exhibition began with these shards of color and we have this quote on the wall where she said I think you can have a tiny painting that is monumental in scale, which is not an ungendered comment, actually, mm. especially given what's going on out in the barn, uh, which Pollock takes as his studio space. And, you know, she's working in these very constrained circumstances. She's in an upstairs bedroom, which they've turned into this kind of makeshift studio. And yet she's creating these small, tightly composed little cosmoses there are little signs that we can take <laughs> as to how she felt about her work and you know she hung these in the guest room so she she clearly felt um she clearly felt pretty proud of them and then what's she doing from around the sort of mark of the 1950s because obviously she's with Pollock at this time the marriage isn't the best thing he drinks a lot mm. does that impact her work at all I'm thinking kind of early 1950s yeah, it definitely does. And, and does she move studio as well at all? So the kind of studio story is that she's in this upstairs bedroom, except for when it's too cold in the barn, at which point Pollock comes in, kicks her out the bedroom, and she has to work in the downstairs living room. And so she decides to make these two mosaic tables. And, you know, my thanks to Pollock, really, because they are some of the most unusual and exquisite works that she makes. She uses bits of broken and tesserae and jewellery and keys and coins and then they're set in concrete and she had a local welder make the legs and then around 53 they convert a small outbuilding into a studio for her but it's still a very small space so she's really always working in these quite constrained circumstances and in terms of her relationship to Pollock I always love the phrase she has she says I think I caught a comet by the tail you know and and there's so much to that because she she always believed in his genius. She was unwavering in that. And that's one thing if you think of the greatest of Pollock's drip paintings. At the point at which she first goes to visit him in his studio at the very end of 1941, it doesn't look anything like anything. And she always always sees this kind of brilliance within his work. And she's committed to that. Actually, I always felt it was important to honour the way she spoke about that relationship. And so fast forward to 1956. Mm -hmm. She is about to go to Paris for the summer and she's made this work, Prophecy, mm. which is really at the point of the exhibition that I just, I mean, like, <laughs> my blood ran cold, literally, because I'm like, oh my gosh, it's almost as though it's a premonition for something's going to happen. You totally see that La Demoiselle, there's the thick outlines and she's really scared of this painting, is mm. she? She describes the painting as fraught with foreboding she says it's unlike anything she's made to date and she does what she and Pollock both used to do with one another which is they'd say to the other is it a painting by which they meant 
is it working? And he encouraged her, said it was good, keep going, and told her to take something. She had this eye sort of half engraved into the paint in the top right-hand corner. He told her to take it out, didn't like it, didn't like the motif somehow. She ignored him, kept it in. And they were meant to have been going on this trip together. And it was a really, it was a really significant thing for Krasner. It was her first trip to Europe. It was her first trip abroad. I think it would have been Pollock's first trip abroad too, because he'd just applied for a passport. He got the passport, but decided in the end that Had she he... ever left the US? No, no, oh, wow. no. And so to not just be leaving the US, but to be going to France at the time, she also hoped to be going to Italy, but to be going in search of, you know, where she thought the land of the birth of modern art, you know, this was a big moment for her. But it was also a moment of reckoning in their relationship. She knew that Pollock was having this affair with Ruth Kligman. There was a degree of an ultimatum and she leaves on this trip and Pollock sends roses to her hotel and she writes him a letter, this heartbreaking letter in which she thanks him and tells him that she says, you know, what she's seen in the Louvre and she describes it as overwhelming and beyond belief and she says she thinks the contemporary painting is terribly bad. <laughs> and, um, and then she says, P.S., how are you, Jackson? And um, she is the one who gets the call from Clement Greenberg in Paris to say that he's crashed his car and killed not just himself, but this friend of Ruth Kligman's. And she, Kligman, survives. So it's this horrific moment in her life and she flies back to New York the same night she's met by Barney Newman and his wife and they arrange the funeral and within weeks she goes back into the studio and she continues the series so this again had been an early idea for me you have these kind of instinctual responses when you're shaping an exhibition I need the show to start with this little image in 1946 because it's brilliant in mm. that it emits light and I need to start with this moment of clarity and breakthrough and I need to end those upstairs spaces with this moment of a different kind of breakthrough and a like moment a of mm. yeah a real moment of, of reckoning and she makes three paintings in that time when she returns to the studio birth embrace and three and two but and how's she feeling at this point well she's asked that question continually because of course Pollock's death is on the front page of the New York Times she's being hounded by the media and one of the interviewers says to her how do you manage to paint at the height of your grief and she says painting is not separate from life it is one that is like asking me do I want to live and my answer is yes and I paint you know, it's as simple as that. We have these much smaller spaces upstairs at the Barbican and then downstairs is these much larger, grander spaces. And I thought, well, what if that was the transition into the barn? Yep. Because that's the moment when the phoenix rises from the ashes, mm. you know, and she says, I'm going to take that studio and I'm, I'm going to make it mine. And I think anyone who's ever experienced real personal loss and taken a moment to think about what it would have meant for her to not just lose her husband, her great love in those yeah. circumstances, but then to go and make his working space and a space which had been not just um, personally very loaded, but also mythologized yeah. by those great Hans Namuth photos, Life magazine, all of this kind of press coverage, which had always focused on Pollock in the studio mid drip with yeah. stick and, you know, 
to make that space her own, that was quite an act. Totally. And I mean, when you go downstairs and just if anyone has seen one of her night paintings, you're just transported into her body almost Mm. because also the momentous vastness of them but the movement of them every stroke Mm. is hers because also wasn't um she suffering from insomnia at Mm. the time so she didn't use color because it all had to be artificial light Mm. and you're just in them and the power of them and it's you totally when you talk about the quote i want to breathe you know i need to paint to survive you're just totally getting everything she's in the canvas. I mean, mm. I really actually felt her presence there. And that's, I think, such an impact of seeing one of her works in the flesh. So what happens after the 50s and 60s? Does she then start to get more recognition? What's the reaction? She's always kind of got her own tempo, which I find interesting. So when we think of what is the kind of high point of American abstract <laughs> expressionism, those of us who like to mull over questions like that, you know, it's generally thought to be the late 40s and 50s. And, you know, Krasner really hits her stride about 1966. So, yeah. <laughs> so she's, by which point, you know, the trends, the fashions in modern art in the US has kind of moved on to pop and hard-edged abstraction and Clement Greenberg has completely shifted allegiance and he's now promoting post-painterly abstraction and Kenneth Nolan and Frank Stella and, you know, but she just doesn't give a damn. I mean, (laughs) she just doesn't care. And I think, again, she's at the end of her life. She talks about... It having been a blessing that she wasn't given more recognition because it meant that she had this freedom to just move in whatever direction she felt compelled to move in. And I think if the exhibition has affected people, it's because the work is not courting trends and it's not trying to seduce us, actually. It's doing something bigger and grander than that. And she writes this statement for the Whitechapel exhibition, which is a very weird statement, which is all about, I think painting is as miraculous as a lettuce leaf. But she goes on to describe how basically, ultimately, you can bore yourself to death with questions of should the paint be thick or thin and should the canvas be big or small and should it be abstract or figurative? But ultimately, These are very redundant questions. And what you need to get at is the idea of, she says, do the inner and outer aspects of man interlock? Then you have transcendence. Then you have the lettuce leaf. So she's really, she's aiming for something that is quite existential, actually. And because she's in her studio space doing her reckoning, she in springs okay so, so she's she, still there yeah wow. and she goes back to manhattan and she keeps abreast of shows and she's a bit more with it than she likes to kind of let on but in terms of the work she's sailing with her own wind really but what's so interesting as well is that she's also constantly editing it so mm. am i right in thinking that she's using collage throughout her whole career Yeah, she has certain, I think collage kind of punctuates her career. Mm. And I think, but in a way, I think you're really right to say that because I think she's the spirit of a collagist is always there. Mm. So that idea of subtraction and negative space and the kind of frayed edge and the energy of construction and reconstruction and, and all of that 
you could probably say is present in all of the work actually and then she has this major moment of doing it in the early 50s which amounts to the stable gallery show which is probably the first point that she sells a painting which is not exchanging work with fellow artists or selling to a fr- you know that there are real sales that's another thing i always forget what mm. the abstract expression is because obviously we're sort of almost blinded by this extortionate prices that they now go for and actually they were all quite poor when they were living oh completely and could not sell their work for love nor want money really <laughs> and you know um Peggy Guggenheim is always kind of bemoaning the fact that she took her 23 Pollocks when she left for Venice because she couldn't persuade any museum or any buyer to take them <laughs> off her. You know, so it is easy to forget that, actually, that they're not really commercially successful. There isn't really much of an art market as such. Um, but she's doing well in terms of museum exhibitions then. So she... Um, She doesn't have her first institutional show until that Whitney show in the 70s, but that's not unexpected. And why do you think that it had sort of taken that long? Because obviously right now, I mean, thinking back to the Royal Academy Abstract Mm. Expressionist show, which was fantastic, but the lack of women was definitely apparent. And I'm wondering why it's taken so long to kind of address these. Was it that the males were just catapulted or they just were kind of catapulted in their fields whilst they were alive? Were the men more famous when they were alive? Is that why they've been sort of supposedly written so much more in textbooks? It's a really important question. In Krasner's instance, I think there are a number of reasons we can identify. So during the beginning of her career, It just wasn't that easy to be able to get a solo show as a woman artist. You know, who is that? You know, there's Betty Parsons and, you know, she shows a couple of the women artists, but she's a bit kind of here and there about how she feels about them. It's not easy to find spaces where you can get kind of recognized. And in the early period, I think the male artists would have felt the same thing. You know, it's not till I think 1946 or 47 that de Kooning has his first show. You know, she's not so far off that. But by the time there starts to be a kind of nascent market, a woman artist is still seen as a contradiction in terms. It's still seen as something of a kind of oxymoron. And when it comes to the work being marketable, it's not seen to be the space where someone would be smart to make an investment. And so there's definitely a lot of cultural factors that play into the level of recognition. Um, When feminism does come along, it does an enormous amount of work and incredibly quickly. And a lot of women artists who are kind of agitating on that front, you've got, you know, Nancy Spiro and Faith Ringgold and, you know, Krasner herself is partaking in these protests at MoMA and you know there's a real kind of energy that gets up to kind of be lambasting these museums and saying what are you doing yeah um and of course we know how that plays out in terms of the guerrilla girls and other actions that follow I think we've got to be careful about showing them as a kind of subject and also there can be a kind of hesitancy on behalf of visitors to sort of feel well wait a sec are you showing me this work because it's really great work Mm. or are you showing me this because it's a woman artist and you feel like you need to make amends as an institution and actually it's okay to say both actually (laughs) it's okay to say we're doing this because institutions need to be having better balance in terms of their programming in terms of diversity but we're also doing this because this is exceptional work and it needs to be seen it always has to be both 
Absolutely. I mean, but also just going back to her character as well. I mean, I, I have such a fantastic quote of what、um, the playwright Edward Albee、mm. said, which was, "She looked you straight in the eyes."、Uh, you dared not flinch. So she、mm. also sounds like such a formidable character who. Was also so determined, and is that why she got these museum recognitions? Was she very good at promoting herself, putting herself out there? She certainly had faith in her own talent. That doesn't waver. So even when we look at how kind of critical she is in terms of you know these destructive bents that she would have, and her going back and kind of editing her past work, it, it doesn't mean that she. Is insecure about her talent. Quite the opposite. She、yeah. just wants to make sure that she's distilling it down to the kind of best work that she made. So she certainly has confidence, and I think she wouldn't have been shy about voicing that when people came and interviewed her and spoke to her. But she's not.、Um, she's certainly not kind of actively promoting herself at the end of her life. She's sort of, if anything, kind of beyond that. I mean, she's really thrilled when Robertson does the show at the Whitechapel because more than any. Thing it's a chance for her to see an overview of her career.、Totally. You know, we forget. We say how meaningful these shows are to us. We forget how meaningful they are to artists. But you're right. She was、um, she was a forceful character, someone who was、um, not to be messed with. But there's a nice line in that Albie actually, and he said, "If she put us on our metal, she gave us gold in return." And I think. You know, he was wanting to say, yes, she was tough, but she was tough for a reason because she was trying to get at some kind of truth in everything that she did and at every conduct and interaction that she had. So there was a purpose behind it. I don't think she was ever kind of just. Needlessly cantankerous.、Mm. And on that note,、um, <laughs> we ask every guest、uh, who comes on if you could ask Krasner one thing if she were alive today, or just say something to her. What would it be? I think what I'd like to say is that、um, I wouldn't be doing this research. I might not even be an art historian were it not for the fact that my mother was a second wave feminist, is a feminist, and. She brought me up in an environment in which I knew about women artists, not just as women artists. And I think, in a way, my question to Krasner would be about, you know, whose shoulders does she stand on? Because I think she didn't have as straightforward a hand to help her into the world that she made her own. And I wonder who she really felt. In the end, looking back, had kind of been most instrumental to her finding her feeling as a painter. Fantastic. On that note, thank you so much, Eleanor, for coming on and being my first guest. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you all so much for listening to my first ever episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the absolutely brilliant Eleanor Nairn. I am completely overwhelmed by Lee Krasner and encourage all of you to look up her fantastic work. Thank you so much to NTS where this episode was recorded, and thank you to my excellent sound engineer and producer Ellie Clifford and co-producer Naomi Abel Hirsch, and of course my composer Ben Weatherfield for the music. Please do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel.
If you're still looking for that perfect piece to make your house a home, then look no further than the Affordable Art Fair. This year's edition, their 20th anniversary, is taking place between the 17th and the 20th of October in Battersea Park, and prices start from just £50. For more details and to book tickets, visit affordableartfair.com and for half-price tickets, use the code GREAT at checkout. Valid Thursday through Sunday. Thanks for listening.